All right, y'all. I am just a few episodes from episode 100. For those of you that have been with me from the beginning, thank you. And those that are new, I am so grateful you're along for the Unburdened Leader Ride. I would be so honored, such a gift to me as we celebrate this milestone. If you have not already, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to the show. And please make sure you're subscribed and share it with some folks you think may benefit from it. So thank you so much for listening to the show. What are we overcompensating for? What are we going to these great heights to not be this person? Just say you're not that person anymore. But there's still so much fear around that. That was like another level of my unfolding, honestly. The process still keeps going. Like I said um, in the book, it's cyclical. It happens repeated and, and all over the place. And so I'm back in that space of like, oh, this is my next round of awakening of like, what are you proving? And, and, and who even is this self that you're so desperately trying not to just prove, but hold on to? Do you find yourself in a constant state of proving, trying to prove you're good enough as a leader, a parent, a partner, or you fill in the blank? And do you know what drives your constant need to prove to others and yourself? Maybe you have a desire to prove someone wrong or to prove you're not the same person you used to be. And when does the need to prove that you're good enough and worthy show up the most? Is it at your work or in your relationships with others or maybe just in your relationship with yourself? Now, when we do the work to earn trust, we look to deepen connections and relationships. Trust does indeed have to be earned and maintained. But I want to note, building trust is different than constantly having to prove, especially if you have a history of relational wounding or trauma. And note, we all have experienced some kind of betrayal, rejection, neglect at minimum. And you may find yourself constantly trying to prove your worth, which is rooted from past experiences where your value or your capabilities were questioned or undermined by significant people in your life. So when you fall into a constant state of proving your worthiness and value, these unaddressed relational wounds feel an excessive need for validation and recognition from those around you that exhausts and leaves you in an excessive loop of hustling, anxiety, and doubt. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Now, our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Now, I suspect you know well the pressure to prove yourself. You know what that feels like. And I'm hard pressed to find someone who walks through life feeling like they don't have anything to prove. I mean, the folks who say they have nothing to prove often seem like they really have the most to prove, right? But when you get curious about your relentless urge to prove yourself, you'll likely find a multitude of trailheads that offer important data about what's at the root of your need to prove. Now, I know for me, the constant need to prove myself usually stirs when someone or something matters a lot to me and vulnerability shows up. 
activating the parts of me that want to mitigate the discomfort by working harder and often harder than is needed, overthinking and questioning myself. When I follow my own trailheads in these instances, these familiar feelings go way back from the task at hand in front of me and find their roots in my relational wounds and traumas from childhood, school, and previous work experiences. Now I'm going to share some different archetypes or, you know, experiences that can birth the need to prove ourselves. And you may relate to some of the types of these relational woundings and traumas I'm about to share as they feel a constant, this constant need to prove yourself, especially in leadership roles where these following experiences can activate the echoes of burdens you still hold from one childhood neglect or abuse. So when you experience neglect or abuse in childhood, it can bring up deep seated feelings of unworthiness or inadequacy in adulthood. And as a leader with this kind of background, you might feel a heightened need to prove your worth and competence, particularly in a challenging or confrontational situation. You can also carry the burden from these kind of burdens from toxic past relationships. Now, whether they're personal or professional, your experience in toxic relationships can instill in you a fear of rejection or criticism. And this fear can drive you to overcompensate by continually proving your worth to avoid perceived or real conflict. This is exhausting. Another one is workplace bullying or undermining. When you consistently experience being undermined at your work environments, you can develop an acute sensitivity to vulnerability that may lead you to constantly seeking validation and affirmation through your achievements and decisions. And a big one too is cultural or societal discrimination. When you face discrimination or marginalization due to race, gender, sexual orientation, or other aspects of non-dominant culture identities, this can result in you developing a chronic sense of having to prove yourself. And if you're a leader from a marginalized group, you may feel additional pressures to demonstrate your capabilities and legitimacy. And the last one I want to highlight is critical or unsupportive parenting. When you grow up with overly critical or unsupportive parents, this can instill in you a perpetual need for approval from others, which can be quite tricky as a leader. The lack of unconditional acceptance in childhood might lead to this constant pursuit of external validation in your professional roles and personal relationships. In each of these various types of experiences that leave us holding the burdens of shame, humiliation, abandonment, rejection, despair, and more, the relational wounds can trigger an intensified fear of vulnerability and conflict, which leads us to, again, relentlessly quest to prove our worth, often at the expense of our authenticity and well-being. But when you commit to doing the work to understand your underlying motivations to constantly prove yourself, you can release the burdens and develop a more secure, confident approach to leadership, relationships, and conflict resolution in all areas of your life. Arielle Astoria is a traveling spoken word poet, self-published author, dance party enthusiast, MC, and event host, speaker, body positive model, actor, and professional feeler. (laughs) She shamelessly claims that she is in the business of 
pulling on heartstrings. And her motto is words not for the ears, but for the soul, which stems from her dedication to remind anyone who encounters her and her work that words are meant to be felt and experienced and not just heard, which just means you may or may not cry by the end of your time with her and you have been warned. (laughs) Arielle has shared her work through spoken word workshops and themed keynote talks with companies such as Google, SoFar Sounds, Lululemon, Dressember, TEDx, Skims, and more. And her first EP is a collection of music and poetry called Symphony of a Lioness and her single Magic in Your Bones are all available on iTunes or Apple Music. She's also the co-author of two collections of poetry, Vagabonds and Zealots and Write, Bloody, Spill, Pretty, which can be found both at Amazon.com. Now, Notice when Arielle talks about her decision about when and where to stop explaining herself. Pay attention to when Arielle talks about how she discerns when to show up and contribute and when to not push herself to perform. And listen for when Arielle talks about how to discern when to just live life for her and not for sharing with the world or on social media. All right, y'all. Now, please welcome back Arielle Astoria to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Arielle, welcome back. I'm excited to be back. I am really looking forward to this conversation today. And we're going to be talking about proving. And as I was thinking about this topic in light of so much that you've written about, and even just a lot of people who are experiencing, there's this sense of constantly having to prove And I don't know if people are aware of how much that's present. And I'm curious if you can share what your relationship with proving to yourself and to others is, particularly in your very public work as a poet, an author, and an actor. Yeah, I think there's such a twofold to this, because I think growing up um, as a Black woman, as a Black woman within evangelical spaces, there was a lot less room uh, for you to prove. Like there was nothing you needed to prove in a sense of like, um, like there wasn't permission for you to show up fully. So what are you proving? Um, what uh. What is there to say, you know? So I think for me, it's like, I and I've shared this before, I'm just like growing up, pretty much just like going through the motions, like making sure I'm being well-liked, making sure I'm being approachable, making sure I'm doing all the presentable and approachable things. And it wasn't until I started doing the opposite of that. And I still think I'm very much so a people pleaser. I still think I'm very much so operate at a, t- at a sense of like, like me, see me, but I'm really trying to get to the point where I operate more in a more authentic space. So I feel like once I shifted and I stopped having to always be approved or approachable or liked or do the good thing or do the pleasing thing. That's when it was like, I had to explain myself more. Who are you to now operate outside of this conditioning that you've been given? Why does your art not sit in this wavelength and now it sits in a whole other thing. I don't understand it. I don't under- understand it and I don't understand you, which as an Enneagram 4 is my nightmare. <laughs> like my absolute 
nightmare. It is the worst possible feeling to be misunderstood. And so in the having to prove myself and in the having to show up and be like, no, but I'm doing this, but I still like this. Like, yeah, I'm going to be like, I'm trying to be a yoga teacher, but look, I'm still going to Israel. Like I'm still a Christian. (laughs) I'm still of this. And having all these outside of what feels natural and what feels comfortable to me um, kind of conditionings. And then, and so it wasn't really until I started doing things outside of um, the space of approval that I even had to come to a point where I, I felt the need to prove. I don't think there's ever a necessity, um, like in a sense of like permissibility means that we can just be and that there is no explanation to it, which is really hard as an artist because I'm like, I don't want to have to explain this to you because then that makes makes it seem like it's more watered down. I had to like spoon fed it to you. I think that's why artists, we like to kind of like be the people to poke holes in things. We like to be the things that kind of like, I'm, I'm not really a flip the whole thing upside down kind of artist, but there are artists out there who are like that and they're so good at it because I think that's our job. Our job is that we don't give you answers. We don't spoon fed you, but we do give you truth. We do give you information. And you are at the end of the day, the artist to decide what to do with it. So this idea of proving has been such a wave, especially a very frequent wave in the last few years of like having to, you know, why are you marrying that person? And and why are you not going to church as much? And, and why are you doing yoga? And why are you? And I just got to the point where I was like, I don't have to explain myself to the people who get me. And I think I just need to lean into that. Okay. So for you, you kind of growing up, there was, if I want to just recap this, it was like, you weren't even aware of the need to prove it was like, you just, there wasn't even like the permission to try and be. And then once you started stepping out of that and doing your own thing, then all the questioning came because you were not fitting their expectations, whether it was family, probably or people that are, you know, experiencing your your art, and then turn, turning that around. And then, so, but what strikes me interesting about proving is, you know, you and I, um, we actually had scheduled this interview mm-hmm. a little earlier, and you had to reschedule because you had a callback for, I think, a commercial. And so that got me thinking more about the proving, like there is this element, you want to land the, the gig, you want to get the, the, the spot. And so how, yeah, what is your relationship with proving, particularly in those acting auditions? Well, I mean, so much of that is you're showing up and you're proving that you're the person for the job, even though there are 50 other people, 100 other people who are also in this room who have also been here, also proving to you that and I think I've just really learned to like go into those spaces of like all I can do is be me. All I can do is show what I bring to the table. And like I had to actually one audition that really like was probably the most epitome of this was I did the audition, I did my version of it. I obviously take the direction and then I add a little something to it on the second take. And then I submitted it. And then I did my callback and the director was in the callback and he gave me a no. I did the no. And then he goes, actually, I kind of liked your initial instinct the first time around. And that's what I ended up doing in the actual commercial. This was for Starbucks. That's what I actually ended up doing was how I naturally responded in that moment. 
he gave me a note to tweak it to see a variation. He was like, actually, no, I really like how you initially did it. And so in all of my classes too, I really learned that, yes, it's trusting the script. Yes, it's listening to direction. And most times people are just seeing like, are you going to be hell on set? Or are you going to be someone who's at least (laughs) nice to work with, you know, or um, not just easy, but just at least pleasant to work with. And so that, but it's also your natural intuition. We're actors. I'm an actor because I have this natural way of like, well, how, how else would this person say this line? Like in what mindset would I have to be different in order for me to approach this? So, so much of it is having to prove myself, which I hate. I really, I think that's why it took me so long to come back to it because I, I wasn't, I wasn't good at doing that at first. I didn't want to have to. And now I'm like, no, I know who I am. I know what I bring to the table. And if the door closes, it closes. Um, But I'm really lucky to always get very close. And I kind of use the getting very close or availing an opportunity as as a win. Like as like I'm on, I was considered. And then it didn't work out for look, for whatever reason. And after so much rejection, you start to be okay with that. And it becomes of like, I can only prove myself in this moment. I do this audition and then I leave. I either made an imprint or I did it. It either works or it doesn't. And you move on to the next one. Yeah. How do you define proving then, given what you just shared? What What is your definition of proving or how do you know you're in a state of proving versus being? Mm. I think there could be so many different ways to think about this. For some reason, the, the first thing that popped in my head when you asked that is a lot of times we think proving, I think in the context we were just talking about, is I'm proving that this there's a puzzle piece, there's something complete, and all you need to fulfill it is me. You need my smile, you need my spark, you need my voice, you need my charisma. But then there's a level where we prove in a sense of like, everything is perfect, everything is perfect. How do then I fit in this? And how do I make myself fit in this? So there's like, I think a secure type of proving and a very insecure type of proving. And I think it really depends Ooh. on in which setting we're sitting into that. I think when it comes to acting, I try my absolute best to tap into my secure proving. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to do this the best I know how. And it's not in an insecure sense. It's like, I trust myself. I trust my gift. And then there are a lot of other times when it comes to family, when it comes to um, work being slow and me trying to figure out who I am as an artist where I'm like insecurely proving myself like, oh, everything is working. Everything else is perfect. And I'm not. And that really makes me come back to, I think, as a kid, if there was any level of me trying to prove, it was this constant proving of like, I'm good enough. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good enough. And even in therapy recently, my therapist did an exercise with me and she was like, I'm going to ask you, who, who, who are you? And you just answer back with whatever comes to mind. So she asked me a few times and I was like, creative, I'm an artist, I'm a feeler. And then I kept coming back to like, I'm good, I'm good. I'm good. And then that's what ended up breaking me down. And I was like sobbing in that. And I was like, okay, what in me living up until these 32 years of life has been surrounded around me trying to prove that I'm good, 
that I'm not sinful, that my body is good, that my blackness is good, that my spirituality, even though it winds and flows and ebbs, is good, that my marriage is good, that me as an artist outside of church spaces is good. Like, I, it was just this constant overwhelming of like, oh, I've been trying to prove to everyone around me that I'm good, that I'm good enough, that I'm good in nature, that I'm that I'm worthy, that and and it's like, okay, but do you but do I believe that about myself? And so I do think there there is a secure and an insecure way of proving. And I think it's just circumstantial in which we tap into one or tap into the other, or are triggered by one or triggered by the other. <laughs> I love that differentiation because um there's almost like proving in spaces where we want to earn the right. We got to earn trust. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and in, you're talking about acting, they're trying to assess, are you going to be a good fit for this piece that they're doing? But you're not putting your worthiness, your good on mm-hmm. the table for them to have a say. And then the yes. insecure proving is it's completely externalized. Yeah. And it's particularly tricky when it comes to family mm-hmm. or the vulnerability when like for you when the work is different, slower or other factors in our mm-hmm. world that if we've externalized our worth and we're waiting for that feedback. And so, and that's interesting for you because that's tricky with work because if the it's quiet and you're not getting the yes. gigs. Oh, I definitely go in waves with that. I'm like, I just am coming off a month of like two conferences and like all these things. And then it's just like crickets. And I'm like, oh, I have to stop like going into this damnation mode of like, you're nothing. You're not doing anything. You're like it. It's it's pretty jolting. It's actually I'm. I just started Carrie Washington's um book book thicker than water, oh. and she actually talks about that at the beginning of like ending scandal and how she was like, if I'm not Carrie Washington, if I'm not lit like Olivia Pope, who am I? And I was like, oh, okay, so this is not just. <laughs> I'm obviously experiencing it on an on a less Olivia Pope level and more just on my level. But that's still a thing we like have where we're like, we do these big things, especially as artists. And we're like, that was the thing. That was, that was what I was here for. So now what the heck am I here for? It's really, it's really jolting. And all your energy, all your thoughts and preparation go into me prepping those poems, me showing up to those events. And then they're done and you're just like, because I'm just going back to my apartment, my plants, and my sweet husband, which are great things. But I'm also like, okay, just like twiddling my thumb. So it's really jolting. And I and I think coming off of of, of COVID, it's even more jolting um, because the pandemic took so much of that away. Anytime it gets quiet, I think it does become like really scary. Yeah. I want to shift a little bit to... Another recent experience that you shared about, and mm-hmm. you wrote an email about this that really stood out to me, and it, it caused me to pause. Um, <laughs> it, you were at a recent book launch party for another really gifted yeah. poet, Cleo Wade. Yeah. And you wrote to your community this. You wrote, but adulting still be adulting. Bills got to be paid. New bills keep coming. My desire to be connected and relevant is costing money. And if I'm honest... My value in myself has been heavily wrapped in being booked and being busy, and I'm desperately trying to untangle it. Mm. What's it like trying so hard to prove yourself 
that you forget the self you're trying to prove. Like, stop in your tracks moment. I was like, yeah, like put that in neon lights. And so take me back to that moment you were writing that. How were you feeling in that moment? So I literally wrote that. So I was at Cleo Wade's book event, which is here in Pasadena. So I was like, oh, I can't not go to that. It's literally down the street from my house. So I went to that. They did like a happy hour at the front of it. And people were walking around, taking pictures. And having just come off of my own book launch, I'm always hyper aware of like how it goes. Like I still feel like the publishing world is something I'm still learning. I'm still understanding. And I know, especially post-pandemic, it's something that's really only lucrative for people whose followings are in the millions, are in the, you know, not even the hundreds. I'm like, my, and my hundreds are really like the 30s, but it's fine. Um, And so I've been really like hyperactively aware of like what happens in those settings. So I'm like watching all my things. I'm by myself. I've been going to a lot of things by myself. um, And it's been made me very, um, very tapped in to a lot of the things that's happening. And so I go, we go inside. Um, I know some people who are there, which I'm really excited about. So I was like, okay, so I'm not entirely alone. So I'm meeting other writers, other Instagram people that I know and love and adore. And I'm like, okay, I feel, I feel good. I don't feel completely disconnected. And she starts reading and people are asking questions and we're in this beautiful church and the church is full. Nicole Ritchie, who's like her best friend, like opens the conversation um, because she's Nicole Ritchie and she's friends with Cleo Wade. And then they have a beautiful conversation. And then there was like some technical issues going on in the church. So we had to move where we were doing the book signing um, or like the meet and greet with her. And I usually skip meet and greets because like I feel like I having known very small versions of them, they're overwhelming sometimes. And as much as you want to be like so intentional and all there, I get how they can be. So I was like, oh, I'm not going to add to her line. But something about it was like, no. I'm going to get in this line. And then I was like, do I give her my book? Is that weird? Like, why do I feel the need to give her my book? Um, But I literally wrote that quote um, in the line waiting to go see her because I was processing, why am I waiting in this line? I think I waited about an hour, actually. And there was like, well, I'm close to home it's not super late. I don't have anything to do tomorrow. But I felt like there was something deeper happening with me um, of like, why do I need to see her? Why do I need to give her my book? And I think there was just this part of me that just wanted to be like, I'm in this world too. Like, I love you. I love your work. And I just, there was part of me that honestly just wanted to be seen by her as another artist and as another peer. And and the line took so long because she's so freaking sweet. She's so unworld, like otherworldly kind. So she's not just taking pictures with everyone. She's talking with them. Like there was a family, um, like two moms and like their girls who were like, they did like a little friend date, but then they also brought the girls with them. And they had another book and Cleo's like literally crouched down like in her designer dress, like reading this book to the two girls. And like she just was so intentional. And so I get there and I'm like, thank you so much. Like I've 
I loved your work for a while. You look great. And she was like, well, coming from someone like you. And she's like complimenting on my outfit. And then I'm like holding my book behind my back, like as we're, as we're taking pictures. And I was like, um, I don't know if this is weird. I was like, I'm also a poet. And I like recently wrote a book as well. And a lot of the themes you were talking about in your book like really like resonated and she was like is this mine and she literally grabbed it from me and was like can I have this and like there was just something in that that like I just needed in that moment like I feel like I was extremely just like discouraged and and I I know that like growth is a big thing and I'm like not growing the way I want to but there was just a part of me that just humanly humanly needed to be seen by her and not just as a person but specifically seen as a fellow artist, as a fellow writer. And so I wrote that while waiting in line <laughs> to go see her. And I needed to process through like why I was doing that. And then it was like, okay, the idea of like, you know, you're trying so hard to prove yourself that you forget even the self you're trying to prove. A lot of it was that moment. Yes. But I think that moment just created space for me to think about a lot of things um, of just like how I still, um, you know, uh, code my language around certain people to like make them think that I'm still the level of evangelical Christian that I was, even though I know in my heart of hearts that I'm well past that, um, that I don't have that same spirit, that I'm not operating in that same space, that yes, I pray, yes, I believe in divinity, but I don't believe in the fear-based like aspect of it. I don't believe in the chain aspect of it. Someone asked me like recently if I prayed about something and I was like, I don't transactionally pray anymore. I don't pray like God is this genie and all my wishes are either going to be granted or I'm going to be told to do something that I don't want to do as a response to it. I don't, I just don't pray that way. And so there was that moment that I think helped me spark of like, what are we overcompensating for? What are we going to these great heights to not be this person? Just say you're not that person anymore, but there's still so much fear around that. Um, and I think I that was like another level of my unfolding, honestly. Um, I mean, I wrote the book. It came out in March, but I'm still doing it. The process still keeps going. Like I said um, in the book, it's cyclical. It happens repeated and, and all over the place. And so I'm back in that space of like, oh, this is my next round of awakening of like, what are you proving? And 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 who even is this self that you're so desperately Try not to just prove, but hold on to. Thank you for sharing that behind the scenes moment. And it's just a reminder for me to bring my notebook or have my notes on my phone open all the time and to process. But what's striking me also is there's a, you, I don't know, this is what I'm hearing and correct this because I want to mm -hmm. make sure I'm not putting words into this, but there's almost this check of why am I in this line? What am I, am I trying to prove? And in that process, you decide that you just wanted a witness. And I think that's different yeah. than wanting to feel seen because witnessing, I think in any of us, the, the gift of witnessing is so powerful and that you you came, you got the witness. There was different. There was a sign to have just be seen, like you said, as a fellow artist, a, a fellow author, a fellow poet. Um, and the other thing that keeps coming up in our conversation is the role deconstruction is playing in this proving piece for you, for you, 
Um, and it, for you, it's faith. I know for a lot of other people, it might be other ways of conditioning that we have had. But it's so it's, it's amazing how there's a desire to be seen by someone and not to not to be told that we matter, mm-hmm. but just there's that validation, that connection. There's something really powerful there. And then this piece about just as you continue to look at proving, that proving is very much connected to your deconstruction yeah. process and yeah. feels really powerful. Yeah. I think I spent so much time, like I said, there was waves where I didn't have to prove because I just was. I just was the poet that was at all the churches and all the Christian universities and all the, you know, I just was in those spaces. I just was also in church, but also going to yoga retreats and doing those things. But I was doing both. So it was okay, you know, and then and then it got to the point where I started to shift a little bit. And it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why aren't you just was anymore? Like, why aren't you just doing that in that way still, um, as if there's no room to grow and change. Um, and sometimes it's like really funny how like how outside of that world I feel. And and we still go I still go to church, you know, like I still I still love a worship song. I still love a Maverick City. Like I'm still very in those spaces, but it just looks so it just looks so different and 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 honestly so free. I feel like I operate less tiptoey. Um, but there was still so much of me that felt like I needed to hold on to that still, and sometimes still does in certain settings, um, because of having always been told of the example I was, or the leader I was, and how hard it is, I feel like, to shift outside of those spaces. When you're the example, how do you grow and change and and be something outside of that when you've always been put on this pedestal almost of a leader of an example of of the you know the poster child for the things you know um and then you're like well that doesn't serve me anymore you know um and there's not a whole lot of room or permission for that not to serve you anymore yeah and so we have to just write that permission for ourselves but there there comes with that some inevitable loss or at least fear of loss whether it's community, whether it's people close to us. Mm-hmm. But like you said at the beginning of our interview, and I say this to people a lot, it is amazing what we do to avoid being misunderstood. Oh, yes. And so if we understand what we're fighting for, I, I start to just tell everyone, you will be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. It's just a fact. So mm-hmm. how what's going to tether you, what's going to anchor you, because you will. Mm -hmm. And then what really it comes down to is, as long as my core people and myself were on the same page, then we'll just ride the wave of the West. But instead of trying to avoid, the avoidance of being misunderstood, I think falls into that, what you called insecure proving Yeah. versus here I am, (laughs) hopefully it lands. And if not, okay, next. And that's obviously rarely that tidy. But um, but I just appreciate that. And another thing you wrote in that same email, um, you've been noting that you you're working to make yourself seem presentable, hireable, seen, relevant, connected, and yet available as possible. <laughs> but this in quotes. And you referenced this at the beginning of our talk too. But I hear this literally from so many people, and I felt that too, especially for women, women of color. Um, those in the LGBT community, particularly those who are trans, mm-hmm. also, and 
I'm wondering if you could tell me about a time when you noticed yourself over-functioning or over-delivering in your work, Mm. particularly in the digital and entertainment spaces. I think um, one of the first ones that come to mind is just because of my following um, in the platform in which I've created, a lot of it had to do with a lot of bigger profiled um, white celebrities, white influencers, white, you know, um, authors uh, sharing my page or sharing my work, especially during the Black Lives Matter. And and, um, a lot of that conversation was like past the mic era of things. And I think there, I felt instantly this pressure then to only talk about my blackness or to only post my art and my poems that were related then to blackness. And I found myself operating outside of like having to like post my poems about Brianna Taylor or post post my things about being a black woman or or post, you know, um, the one time, you know, I was called, um, you know, a derogatory term. And it, and it just became so like, I don't, I don't live here. Like I am a black person. I'm, I'm always going to be a black person, but I don't live in this constant state of narrating about my blackness in the same way that I feel about being a plus size or a bigger bodied person. It, it became a point where it's like, I can only post myself in a swimsuit. I can only post about how I'm big and my husband is small. Like I can only post about, you know, poems about being in a body. And I was like, half the time I just want to, I just want to be in my body. I don't want to talk about my body. I don't want to have to um, show other people what it's like to be in my body as a black person, as a black woman, as a curvy black woman. I just, sometimes I'm just here. And I think I did have a post at some point where I'm like, I don't want to always be showing you my stretch marks or my dimples on my page all the time. And my engagement goes in ways because I don't stay in those spaces, because I don't allow, you know, the algorithm and social media to confine me to only this niche part of who you are, can you make a social platform? I refuse to stay there. And and I've, and I've you know, I've, I guess, suffered the consequences is a, a word for it. But I just not, I just can't only talk about one version or one dimension of me. Um, I'm going to talk about the fullness in which I exist and the fullness in how I show up. But there, in both of those places, there was this constant having to push out conversation or push out art or push out content solely in those conversations. And I'm like, and for what? For me to like stay here and then the moment I start talking about something else, then I'm not engaged with as much because I'm a multifaceted, multiversed human being. That's insane. Like, well, how, why do we do that? So those were definitely two instances where I was just like, I can't stay here because now I'm bored. That's another part of, I don't know if that's my Enneagram fourness. I don't know if that's my Libra energy. I don't know if that's my artist injury energy, but I'm like, I don't want to keep talking about this. I'm, I'm bored with this, you know, like what else is there to explore? What else is there to learn about? What else is there to share about myself? And I think I go into that space. So yeah, there was definitely both of those moments. And I don't post a bunch of content around um, my faith or about things like that, just because I really learned how much it's like so personal and it was made to be so public for so long. And I was just like, it's mine. I don't owe it to anyone. Um, And I think that comes down to my blackness and my body. This is mine. I don't owe 
um, an example or a post to anyone about it. Leading is hard. (laughs) Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm, and move you from a place of building trust to hustling and proving your worthiness. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up old echoes of doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid in your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and ever more polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It honestly is brave and bold work to stay the course, know who you are, know what you have to offer when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up and have you question yourself. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protectors of cynicism and the desire to constantly prove yourself at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't wanna lose focus, when you wanna navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you wanna make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than you were told. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. What are the stakes then right now for you owning what is yours and not what people are expecting from you Yeah. as you navigate both your career and your well-being? Yeah. Well, I think you create people, especially now we're seeing, you know, people with platforms always need to be talking. I was even thinking about that recently. I was like, oh, I think this letter that we're reading to prove one, I think that might have been the last one, the last one I wrote. And even waking up this morning with this like anxiety of like, I haven't posted on my sub stack. I haven't said words lately. And this constant need to talk, this constant need to be posting and sharing. And like, I am really learning that I don't operate in that space and finding myself feeling less guilty for it, but then also finding that less opportunities come because of it. You know, less doors open because I'm not constantly feeding the thing, you know? And honestly, I'm like, my peace is more intact because of it. And so I guess that's the worthy trade. Um, but I was feeling that for for quite a while of like, oh, I'm not choosing to feed this thing and the way it's demanding to be fed. And even Substack is the same thing. I'm like, I, I've subscribed to a lot of different authors and people. And I'm like, it's constant. It's just constant, constant, constant. And I'm like, this is not sustainable. This does not work for 
us as human beings. And so having more days where it's just like my husband had the day off on Tuesday. So we went to the beach and we just sat and I read Sula because I'm like doing a book club. And I was like, I needed to get some reading done. And the book is incredible. And he was doing homework. I just sitting at the beach and I didn't feel the need to post a picture all the time. I didn't feel the need to write a post about it. I'm just like, oh God, I think sometimes we just, sometimes it's okay to just live and not have to document it or process it or write about it all the time. And I just, I can't sustain this thing that constantly demands to be fed. Like my peace also demands to be fed and I'd much rather feed that. And yet you're in a business that by you being on social media, you writing, that gives you more opportunities to be seen, to be yeah. noticed in the business you're in. Mm-hmm. So I I just want to nudge this again. Are you still figuring this out? Or is there like a flow for you? But what are you doing to kind of navigate the tension of the world we're in, but also with being an, being a writer mm-hmm. and an actor? And wanting to get yourself out there. Those are fields that are so competitive. Yeah. How do you navigate that while still staying grounded in things that protect you and your peace? I think it's a matter of like doing the necessary things. Me posting about my auditions, me posting, like I posted a headshot yesterday because I was really excited about them and I really liked how it turned out. But like I didn't have to do that. So me doing things that are like, this is not. I don't have to post about my acting journey on TikTok. That's not, those are not necessary things. Those are great things that might turn into something. But that's the thing. It's like you we're doing those things in hopes that maybe they turn into something, you know, and hopes. And so I think really getting to the point where I'm leaning into like sharing and and posting in, in a way that feels good and easeful and not forced and rushed. So I posted this morning, you know, like, this like um, carousel of like in November kind of like mantras, like in November, we're moving slow, like in in November, we're finding peace, we're inviting peace. And in November, we're cozy, you know, and, and finding these like things that I'm trying to also usher in, in these last two months of like, I'm not um, a beginning or end of the year person who's like, we got to finish, we got to do all the things or get to the beginning of the year. We're like, okay, let's get a start. We're going to do all the things. I'm very much so in my like, oh, the year is going to be what the year is going to be. And I'm going to make sure that I'm held um, and that I'm at ease in the process of it. So I think just coming to a point of like, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to move and operate in a way that feels good. And if it doesn't feel good, then I'm not going to do it. Um, I still have an audition to submit after this, you know, like I still, I still, I'm getting digitals done, which is just like very bare faced kind of like neutral photos because I'm still putting effort. I'm still casting um, necessary things out in the world that I'm wanting and that I'm wanting to be a part of. But the excess stuff I'm not doing in this and and just tiring myself out unless unless I'm excited about it. Like I got a jacket this week and I did a styling video because I was having fun with it. And will I do another styling video anytime soon? I don't know. But, you know, I think just like giving myself the grace to not have to constantly be putting out, constantly be showing up, constantly be saying something. I just don't know if that's sustainable. And I'm not. I'm not really writing and in my concentration as much as I want to be because of that. Yeah, it sounds like 
you're showing up still in consistent ways, but allowing inspiration and joy and intentionality versus the I have to, I should, I need to prove. So you see me, you never know. Someone might miss me. It's more like, hey, I'm going to be on here. So kind of that dance is what I'm hearing. Well, you mentioned your book, The Unfolding, an invitation to come home to yourself. And I asked you to read a poem called Nothing to Prove. Would you mind reading that? It's on page 121. Yeah. Nothing to Prove. They ask me why I pose in my underwear on social media. Ask me what it is I'm trying so hard to prove. I say, ain't that the reason for freedom anyway? That we don't have to prove anything at all. So we dance in cropped cotton bras and high-waisted underwear. We pose in lace that makes us feel like whatever woman we want to be without the hiding. We reveal what has always been underneath our coverings as they tell us to stay covered, keep quiet, spine not so tall, trapping us into exhaustion from holding up everyone else's fear of our bodies that we no longer have for ourselves, he tells me. Only prostitutes of biblical times use their bodies to lure people away from God. I tell him, I am not trying to lure anyone anywhere. I am simply trying to keep God in. How is this approach to releasing the drive to prove different from other conventional wisdom on this topic? Hmm. I think for me, that poem was definitely like in a season where I was having to vouch for myself a lot, not just prove, but almost like defend my personness, you know, Um, that I was constantly experiencing my Enneagram for a nightmare of like, no, you're like, you're not getting me. And I don't know how to like explain to you how to understand how I'm moving and operating when for me, it feels very Uh, My intention feels very open. I feel like a very raw and open person that tries to make their intention as plain as possible um, because I I don't like when there's not clarity to things or to people especially. So... That poem was really birthed out of out of a season of like, you know, um, why are you posing in your underwear? Like, don't you know better or you do better or or whatever? And it was just like, I'm just being like, I'm not trying to really prove anything. Um, and I and it was that question of like, what are I was asked, you know, what are you trying to prove? Like, we've always like told you you were beautiful we've always like you've always been raised in a good household what are you doing and i'm like i'm not operating outside of those teachings or those raisings i'm operating within how i've now walked in and interpreted who i am and how i show up in the world and i think that poem was like my my final space of like this doesn't feel outside of who i am like i've kind of always been this person, I'm just really yeah. stepping into the adult version of her. And I'm sorry if that's not the version you wanted, um, but that's the version I'm, I'm that I am, you know, and that I'm operating out of. And that feels good. And, and maybe she'll shift again. But like, this is who's living and breathing now. And um, I think that was my own personal permission set for myself. Um, of like, I'm not trying to like lead people anywhere. And that's the other thing. It's like, 
that constant pressure from evangelical, you know, spaces of like, you're leading people places. And I'm like, what people? There's no, there's not one here, you know? And I'm not responsible for how everyone in this world lives. I don't find myself as a person of faith. I don't carry that anymore, you know? So that poem was definitely my own personal permission set for a lot of different spaces. Yeah. There's a whole conversation here that evangelical and white Christian supremacy culture, are they different? Are they not? And but sure. th- there's an element of that evangelical space where when they say you're leading this way, then really it's about them saying, trying to control you and go, you're operating yeah. out of who I think you're supposed to be or who I uh-huh. want you to be or who I think you should be. And and uh-huh. I'm going to go throw on some shame and weaponize something so sacred as your faith to get yeah. you afraid of losing that and this and then then distort what yeah. power is. So yeah. I hear that and I feel a little fired up again because I feel like I'm having yeah. these conversations a lot. And there's something very scary to power over systems when we come into who we are and mm-hmm. are not externalizing our power and our worth when we're not mm-hmm. proving you know, whether it's, am I Christian enough? Am I good enough? Am I yeah. smart enough? Am I successful enough? All those things, if we don't externalize it, then those power over systems lose their power. And so yeah. it's a big threat when we right. step into, you know, like you said, well, sorry, it's not a problem. I'm like, oh, hashtag, sorry, not sorry. Like, you know, right. no, <laughs> I'm done. You, you'd actually haven't earned the right to have an opinion over this. I mean, maybe there's mm-hmm. some, a handful of people in my life that sure. do when, They'll say, Rebecca, yeah. <laughs> what's happening mm-hmm. here? <laughs> but but this collective, I don't know you, but if you say this, I have an opinion on you and I'm going to say really awful things and that's done with love, you know, all that BS. I, so I, I just, I just, yeah, speak, I just call it all, all, all BS. And I think it's dangerous. And so it, it's the harm. It sounds like you're coming out of something so much more like expansive and taking up space and shining light. So many folks can stay in that, um, whether it's an evangelical background or just some sort of belief about their worth and their value. Um, and it's it, it's a hangover that can last for decades. So I really, I really appreciate that. And I, I want to shift a little bit just slightly to success, because often proving and success seem to be like first cousins. <laughs> and you you wrote in your book, I I think having to operate out of an analytical way of defining success in the last few years, really started to take a toll on me. Do you remember what was going on in your life when you wrote that? Mm, I think a lot of that was, it was analytical, but it was also very much so like, this is the path. It's very much so that you can graduate high school, then you go to college, then after college, you you get the the spouse and you get the house and (laughs) you get the thing, you get the thing, you get the thing. And I had already known that I was like not operating within that space. I graduated a year later. I did not even date in college, let alone walk away with a spouse. You know, I was already going the more unconventional route in so many ways of like double majoring and then dropping one of my majors and then graduating from, you know, a private Christian university only to be a freelance artist. Like so much of like how I was operating was so outside of analytical, so outside of conventional. And yet I still kept trying to like force myself in it, you know, force myself in a space of like 
but it still makes sense, you know, like, but I, but I, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to be an artist, but also I have all these other jobs, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing the good thing. Look at me. I'm still good. I'm still doing, I'm still doing the approachable thing. I'm still doing the conventional thing, even though I really wasn't. And then when it got to the point of like, um, you know, more bigger life decisions of like books that I was writing and putting out in the world um, and that being outside of, you know, the realms in which people wanted or expected for me and finding the person that I fell in love with and knew I wanted to spend like so much of it was just like, oh, I've constantly been in this outside of conventional spaces and outside of conventional thinking but I kept telling myself that I was still in the wavelength of what made sense. I still was in the heart of being like I was still operating in a way of like, even though it was slightly unconventional, somehow I always got the applause still at the end of it. And then I realized like I was getting to the point where I wasn't getting the applause at the end of it. And and can I still wholeheartedly and courageously walk in it and trust in it? knowing that it was good for me and that there wasn't an applause or a you're good or a gold sticker at the end of it for whatever reason. Um, and could I still walk in that route? So I think I've always been this way. Um, I watch kid videos of myself and I'm like, oh yeah, I w- we're actually exactly where we are supposed to be because she was running around with feather boas making up songs and um, and being other people, you know, in the trees. So this feels this feels actually pretty spot on. Yeah. I think it's awesome. And again, another reminder of all of these narrow little boxes that I think so many of us try to fit in. Again, whether it's a, a place of worship, whether it's a workplace, whether it's our families school. There's so many should still. And I, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, I do feel like, a, a, you know, the youngins get a little bit of a bad rap, but I'm, I'm digging what my kids are saying. I'm digging. <laughs> I, I'm digging how they're like, who cares? You know, like, there's just, they don't care. They still feel yeah. some of the grind. I think of, you know, just having to make, make money and be successful. Yes, you know, they're, they're navigating those messages, but I'm just grateful to hear that this is something that you're rumbling with now, because when it goes unaddressed, it can really, really become malignant. Um, yeah. So how has your understanding of success changed since you were maybe that young girl running around, yeah, but sure. growing up, internalizing these messages to today? What does that mean then to you today? Yeah, I think success still has always been around like not materialistic things, not like it's always been like, am I doing the things that like I love? Am I doing the things that like excite me and fill me up? And, you know, I was chatting with a mentor mm. and she was like, what do you, she was like, um, you know, how's, how's jobs stuff going? And I was like, ah, I don't know. I'm casting nets. We're seeing what happened. She was like, well, like what, how, like you maybe you need to meet with people in your dream job. And I was like, I'm in my dream job. It just is not always paying me all the time, but like I'm 100% in where I want to be, that I'm I'm making my own schedule, that I get to wake up and like be week to week in spaces that excite me. I want to be on people's sets and I'm on people's sets, you know, like I want to be in rooms where conversations and creativity are happening. I'm in rooms where conversations and creativity are happening. I just want more of it. And I want it more consistently. And so I definitely think, I don't know how I interpreted success success as a kid. I think 
being an adult felt successful <laughs> at that time. Now I'm just like, ah, being an adult's for the birds sometimes. Um, but I think mostly it's just a matter of like, I, I do feel like I'm in a marriage that feels rich and feels full. I'm in work that I love. I just want more of it. And so I'm like, this feels like success to me. And in some waves, I'm like, it goes in waves. I think that's one thing I'm having to debunk quite a bit is that success is this constant uphill sustainable wow. thing when it's not it's so ebb and flow it's so in seasons and being more comfortable with that um being more um you know easeful and that is something i think if anything i'm really shifting when it comes to the idea of success that it's not always high mountains wow. and high moments that it is very much so the waves of things yeah and i'm i'm not wired to be as ebb and flow <laughs> yes i've had to adjust you know, what are the constants that I need? What are the yeah. what's my like minimum so I can, you know, the bills yeah. get paid, the kids right. are taken care of, but those other ambitions, those excitements, the things, what am I making space for? And and it isn't just this linear path or steadfast, steady path. And I think that's yeah. such a good reminder. We also have this false sense of control over that and then feel like that. we're at fault. Yes. If we are not getting it. And but I will say success and making a really good living and being able to pay the bills and be generous with it. I think that's something that's important too. But I, I hear that and sometimes we put, we put that, we sometimes put the numbers so far ahead of what really does bring us joy, right? We've, I mean, you've heard the stories of, oh, you can't major in art. You need a degree that will pay the bills, right? Yes. And so I just, yeah, I think that that's just, if our soul, we're not doing what delights us we it, it just it, we go dark and that's mm -hmm. the zombie life and that's rough that's true this was such a fun conversation before we wrap up i have some quick fire questions for you great you referred to this i think already but what are you reading right now i'm reading sula by tony morrison um, which has been so good. That book is pretty wild. I was not prepared in the best possible way. And it actually talks a lot about just like um, her question in her prologue is what would you do if there was no hand, hand, if there was no hand to stop you? Like who would these women be without the rules, without the conditioning? And it's pretty wild. And I really love it. Um, so I'm reading Sula. I'm also listening to um, Thicker Than Water, Carrie Washington's um, autobiography. Yeah. Oh, and she read it. Did she yeah, read it? Yeah, she's reading it, which is oh, like after geez, reading Viola, after listening to Viola Davis's, I was like, this is the only way I actually want to listen to an audio to a, like an autobiography is if they're reading it out loud. I want to hear it. Like, I really love the storytelling oh. in audiobooks. Yeah. What song are you playing on repeat right now? Oh, my gosh. Um, it's not really songs. It's albums. So the three albums that are just on constant loop right now are um, Stampa. He's a, a, a British um, um, like singer-songwriter, rapper. Um, Jamila Woods, who is a poet, um, her... The song Garden is like, Tiny Garden is like one of my favorites. And then Maddie Zom. Those are like the three albums that I just like listen to on repeat all week long. Yeah. For like, since they've awesome. all come out on the same week. So those are, those are the three. <laughs> what is the best TV show or movie you've seen recently? Um, Reservation Dogs was Ooh. incredible. It's um, about... 
um, these kids on a native reservation. And um, it is some of the most beautiful storytelling I've seen in a long time. It's funny. It's lighthearted. They ended it at the perfect time. Even though you want more, you're also like, yeah, this feels good. And now you're just like wondering what those characters are still doing, like how they're still living. Yeah, Reservation Dogs. John was actually, my husband John was watching it and I tag teamed in like a few episodes in and then we went back and rewatched and then I f- finished it with him. Um, and it was incredible. That and um, Only Murderers in the Building, which has been so fun to watch. Only Murders, so good. We just so wrapped fun. the latest yes. season. It's so, so fun. fun. We've watched it with our whole family. Yes. Yeah. So good. Um, what is your favorite uh, piece of 80s pop culture? 80s pop culture. That's, I mean, that's like the Madonna Prince era. Anything in that space. I am like, I because that, that You're carried. speaking my love language. Yeah, that like carried. I'm like, I'm an early 90s kid, but like, I know my Madonna and Prince. Yeah. Rest in peace, Prince. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. I miss him. As Madonna's out touring as we're recording uh-huh. this. And I'm yeah. like, I wonder I wonder what Prince would be doing mm. if he were still with us today I making know. some incredible music. Yeah. What is your mantra right now? I think my mantra right now is just like inviting ease, whatever that means, Ooh. whatever that looks like. I spent a lot of this year trying to like maintain, you know, brand relationships, trying to maintain a social media influencer perspective, trying to maintain all these things. And I was like, I got to the point where I was like, I'm tired. (laughs) I'm done. And it's November. So we're about to circle back into next year anyway. So let me just let a lot of this go. Um, Just inviting ease. Yeah. What's an unpopular opinion you hold? Um, I think Boba is disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) I don't... I don't like, I'm like, I'm a texture person, so I can't, I can't do a lot of textures. And that's like, not just boba, ricotta cheese, um, anything that like, like I am a baked sushi girly and people will probably 100% fight me on that. And that's, <laughs> that's fine. I'll go to sushi with you, but like. I probably will have a baked salmon roll. Like, I'm just going to be 100% honest. I just, textures are really hard for me. And it does, I won't taste it. If you're like, it's so good in the flavor, it does not matter. My my taste buds will fight you because it only tastes the texture of things. So, but I would love, I love going to it because a lot of my friends love boba, but I'm like, can I get it just a tea? Can I not have just a the tea. things in it? Just you know, no, no those- tapioca, please. Yeah. Lastly, who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Who or what? That's a great question. I think who my niece, just because I she's three and she's growing up in this world. And I'm like, we got to make a space that allows her to be her best, fullest version of herself, most free version of herself. Um and think about that a lot. Um, and then also my husband, he just constantly is in a space of wanting to learn, um, wanting to understand. Um, and that really helps me tap into that more in a, in a more logistical side. Like I will feel deeply for all the things, but he will learn about all the things. And that's how he feels deeply. And so um, I think the combination of the two really keep me keep me intact for sure. Where can people find you and connect with you and your work and your book? 
You can find me at Ariel Astoria. That's A-R-I-E-L-L-E. E-S-T-O-R-I-A. Um, that's dot com. That's on Instagram. That's on Twitter X, I guess if that's what it's called. Um, that's on Threads, um, Spotify and iTunes. Um, for my poetry and music, you can find The Unfolding wherever books, audiobooks, and ebooks are sold. Um, prefer that you go to your local bookstore. If they don't have it, tell them to order it and then find another local bookstore that has an online page um, and purchase from them to get the, to keep those spaces alive. We'll make sure to link that to my bookshop that we have. So yes. Ariel, thank you so much for coming back to the thank show. You. I hope you do it again. This was a really good conversation. I'm so excited to see what unfolds for you in the months and the years to come. So really appreciate you. Thank you. Before you go, I want to make sure you take away some of the important learnings from this Unburdened Leader conversation with Arielle Astoria. It was so great to have her back on the show. And Arielle reminded us how universal the experience of feeling like you constantly need to prove yourself to others is so common, right? She also shared how her roots in the church and as an artist exacerbate the need for her to prove. And we all have our roots that really magnify this this desire, this need to prove and hustle for our worthiness from others. And Aria also modeled in this conversation how when we get clear on the messaging we internalize, and what's contributing to this constant need to prove, we can reauthor who and what we listen to along with these messages. Our wounds often serve as catalysts for personal and professional growth, particularly when we experience relational trauma. But by acknowledging your relational wounds, understanding the root of your need for constant proving, you can develop a practice of ongoing curiosity, healing, and growth in all areas of your life. I'm curious, are there certain spaces or people that activate the need to constantly prove yourself? And how do you respond to feeling vulnerable around people that matter to you? And how can you better lead by building trust through deep connections versus feeling like you have to have everyone's approval? Our need to constantly prove ourselves often finds its roots deeply intertwined with past relational trauma. We we talked a lot about that today. And when we take the time to understand and address these burdens, we can move beyond the cycle of validation seeking and proving and lead from a more authentic, calm, and confident place. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to sign up for my Unburdened Leader weekly email and ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. And if this episode was impactful to you, I'd be honored if you left a rating, a review, and shared it with a few folks who you think may benefit from it. And this episode was produced by the incredible team at Yellow House Media.